It is a joy uh, to be back up here with you um, again. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago I got to preach, and now I'm back at it. Um, as before that, like a month in between my sermons. And so y'all were probably like, good, we get some short sermons. Um, and then I was like, gosh, I'm ready to preach again. So uh, I'm thrilled to be back up here. Um, you can go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already to Romans chapter 12. Surprise, surprise is where we're still at. We've got this week and two more weeks before we're at Advent, you guys. We're coming up close and coming in hot um, on Advent really shortly. And so I'm excited about that. I love Advent, but I'm really, really just, the Lord is, gosh, y'all, he is working on my heart going through Romans chapter 12 in so many ways. And just when I think, okay, the sermon's been preached to me, yesterday, God is like gut checking me on some of the things that are going in my mind and going on in my heart um, that I was gonna stand up here and preach to you about. And so these sermons get preached in depth to me before I get to come and share them with you. Um, And so I have been just so um, (laughs) both, broken down in some ways by the Lord, but also built back up by him through his word this week as I prepared. And so I'm excited about this. Um, This week, I've got three verses. If you recall last week, I made, I could have made three sermons out of one verse, but this week I've got three whole verses. So strap in, I don't know what else to tell you, but we're going for it. And um, and you're gonna have to like, Keith Pugh used to say, you're gonna have to listen faster. Um, So we are in Romans chapter 12 again. Hopefully you found your place. We're in verses 14 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, In these next moments, God, would you speak to our hearts? Um, God, would you use me as your instrument um, to proclaim, God, the the beautiful truth of your word, the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And God, may those who hear in this room and online um, today and in days to come that may go back and watch this or listen to it, God, may you um, plant the seeds of your word in their lives that grow as they take root and bear fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. God, we thank you for what you're going to do through your word in these next moments. Praise things to your name, amen. So a term that many of us have probably become familiar with um, over the last year or two is a term cancel culture. Um, And the title of this sermon is actually Christian cancel culture. Um, So cancel culture, um, is something according to dictionary.com's pop culture section, which they, I didn't know they had until I started doing some research of this. I was like, how do you define this? So I'm gonna give you a kind of lengthy definition so hopefully you can get a couple of nuggets from it. But it says this, it said, cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for or canceling public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Okay, so good there. So moving on, it says cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. When something is canceled, it is nulled, ended, voided, done, over, no longer wanted, like a TV show subscription. This sense of cancel is the basic idea behind the slang meaning of canceling a person. When a person is canceled, they are no longer supported publicly. And usually public figures are said to be canceled after it has been discovered they have, been, they have done something offensive. It involves calling out the bad behavior, boycotting their work, such as um, by not watching their movies or listening to their music, uh, and trying to take away their public platform and power. This is often done in a performative way on social media. So there's a big, long description of what cancel culture is. And hopefully, if you weren't familiar with it, now you've got at least an idea of what we're talking about. And so we could kind of summarize this by saying, cancel culture is the process or the act of shaming someone or something in order to make it that person or thing discredited, irrelevant, and to the point of doing this to the point of non-existence because what he, she, or it said, did, or stands for is deemed inappropriate, wrong, or inexcusable. So in other words, it's really erasing something that you think shouldn't exist in the first place, okay? 
It's canceling someone for, for his views that go against a different view that has been deemed morally or otherwise superior. Um, cancel culture has become kind of this unapologetic weapon um, of many people, especially on social media. Um, we've seen it happen a lot. It's talked about um, if, if you're on social media and following anything there, you, you've heard about it. If you've listened to the news, you've probably heard about it. Um, and it's a way of silencing those who disagree with us. That's the way that we see it in popular culture in our, our society. Um, for some, it is something that's considered to be a weapon. For others, it's something that seems to be something that's just really ridiculous, right? Some people look at it and there's a lot of scrutiny um, and critique to this approach of trying to make someone or someone or something um, not exist essentially anymore. Um, and I would say that it's rightful for us to, to be a little critical of cancel culture as we see it in our society. But today, I would submit to you this, that Romans 12 and specifically the verses that are before us, verses 14 through 16, they suggest, and I would say encourage Christians to practice a specific and a peculiar kind of cancel culture. And you're like, Jared, you've lost it. What are you talking about? Well, I'm about to tell you in three points and a conclusion. So this culture, of can this cancel culture is one that we must exercise not upon others, but upon ourselves. In light of the gospel of Jesus and in the power of the spirit to the glory of the father. There are thoughts, words, and actions that no longer deserve relevance or existence in the Christian life. They should be canceled. So how do we see this in these verses? I'm glad you asked. The first thing we see is that persecution calls for blessing and it cancels cursing, or you could say revenge. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I don't know about you. I've never really been persecuted for my faith. Never really in a, in a real meaningful way been persecuted for my faith. I have experienced something. The closest thing was uh, I was going on a school trip when I was in seminary to London and we were gonna be spending about two weeks there uh, observing how the Christian faith was being advanced in various contexts, um, whether it was from a coffee shop who didn't meet on Sunday mornings because that's when people were out doing their shopping and the church wanted to be out in the marketplace meeting people. Um, so they had their services, I think on a Tuesday night while the coffee house was just open in the back of the coffee house. Or whether it was going to a place where um, a Anglican pastor was trying to build relationships um, with the Sikhs, the one block this way, and the Muslims, one block this way, and the Hindus, one block that way. Whatever it was, we saw multiple things. But when we were going over there, I was stopped. I was traveling by myself. I was stopped by the customs agent. And she started asking me multiple questions, um, which I don't think she asked the ones in front, the people in front of me, but I don't know, maybe I just look funny. And so she asked me, she started asking questions about why I was coming to visit. Knowing now what I know, I should have just said, I'm just here for fun. Uh, but I started explaining it was school related. That led to more questions. And eventually it came out that I was there um, with a Christian organization, um, with Christian intentionality in my being there. And she told me, step aside. Get my passport, told me to step aside. And she let the next three or four people behind me go through step their passports, they sent them on their way. And when the line was gone, she called me back over there and said, you are not to say anything of Jesus or Christianity while you were here in this country. Now, then she stamped my passport and sent me on my way. Now, was that frustrating? Yeah, sure, it was, it was a little frustrating that I got singled out like that. Was it specifically regards to my faith in Christ? Absolutely, it was. There's no denying that. But in light of the things that we have seen throughout history and even in places in the world right now, I would hardly consider myself persecuted in that. Maybe it was a little bit biased, sure. Persecuted, that's not quite the thing. But here in these verses, when Paul is writing to these Roman Christians, persecution is very real. Again, this is during the time about when Paul is writing, when Nero is allegedly covering Christians in pitch and, and setting them on fire in his garden when he is blaming Christians for the burning of Rome, they almost, he was certainly the one who started himself, that fire. Christians were experiencing very real persecution. And what in the world does Paul say to them? Bless those who persecute you and don't curse them. 
That's a, that's a high standard that Paul is asking for, right? Um, and like, I didn't, when I, was, when I was detained, I tried to be polite. I didn't, I didn't revile her in return. I didn't, didn't curse her. I complained a little bit afterwards to some of the other people on the trip with me. But that was about it. Um, I, but I certainly didn't bless her either, if I'm, if I'm being honest. I, w- I, was a little, I was a little annoyed. Yet Paul is saying here to do something very, very radical and very against what is all of our nature. Um, again, Rome was persecuting Christians. Jews were heavily persecuting Christians because they did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. Um, and he tells them to bless them. What a difficult thing to be commanded to do. And, and just as an aside about Paul's own personal track record, according to our terms of cancel culture today, Paul would have been an illegitimate person to even give this command to them. You know why? Because Paul persecuted the church of Christ. And now he's telling them, you know what you should do? You should bless the people that, you, that are still like I used to be. Paul, you're a hypocrite. How in the world are you gonna tell us to bless these people? What gives you the moral authority to do that? He doesn't have the moral authority to do that. He has the, the gospel authority given to him by Christ. But in today's culture, he would, he would be written off. In our cancel culture today, Paul would have been completely written off. But that's an aside. Let me get back to it. Blessing others, let's, let's just be honest, can be very, very difficult for us to do, even in the best of circumstances. But especially when we feel those people don't deserve to be blessed by us or anybody else or anything else. And let's be honest, we probably encounter these kind of people on a pretty regular, if not daily basis. People that you're like, you don't deserve a blessing. You don't act like that, treat people like that, treat me like that, you don't deserve my blessing, kidding me? That's our natural tendency to push back against this. Um, And of course, this would include people who would be in the category of persecuting us, right? So what is Paul actually expecting of believers when he says this? When he says, you're to bless and not curse those who persecute you. Well, I think there's a few things that we can say. One, blessing equals speaking well or highly of. The word in the Greek here uh, that is translated bless is, you, uh, sorry, eulegeo. Uh, my, my, my Greek's a little off today. Eulegeo, and it's where we get the English verb eulogize. Um, the idea we usually think of this is that a funeral, a eulogy is spoken, and it's spoken in high praise of the person, pointing out all the good things about their life, right? We're speaking highly of them. Um, eulogize is, in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, defined as to speak or write in high praise of. Really? The Bible is telling us that we are to say good things about people who mistreat us. That's what the Bible expects of us? How, how are we supposed to do that? Right? And what if the only thing we know about that person is their mistreatment of us? What if that's the absolutely only thing you know about that person? How are you supposed to speak well of them? Well, here's how. We can say that that person, he or she, is created in the image and likeness of God. Because it's true. The Bible tells us it's true. A person who Jesus shed his blood for, if he or she will repent of sin and look to Christ in faith. That's what we can say about that person. The greatest thing that we can say about any and all human beings is that they were created, that we are created in the image and likeness of God. There is no higher form of praise that exists for every single person on earth. And the only thing that could be said that's greater is that that person is redeemed and reconciled by the blood of Jesus to be one with him in Christ through faith. It's the only thing that could be said higher. And that is offered to everyone freely, the Bible tells us. So there's always, no matter the circumstance, no matter the mistreatment, there's always something that we can speak of well of these. And the Bible tells us we're to do. Secondly, blessing equals praying for. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of the best ways to bless those who persecute us is by praying for them and praying specifically for them to believe in Jesus Christ. Just think of it. If we are praying for their salvation and they come to faith in Christ, their weapons of persecution against us will be laid down just as Paul's were against the Christians. The thing that they're bringing an attack against us for our faith will be nulled because now they are one of us. 
Why would we not pray for such things? But he goes beyond that. We're to pray in a way that is for their good. That is crazy. Luke's gospel account records a similar thing to what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in those words of Jesus where he says in Luke 6, 26 and 28, woe to you when all people speak well of you. That sounds a little different. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We should expect the world to speak well of us on the whole, honestly. The reality of the gospel is while Jesus is inclusive to any and all who will believe from him, he also makes very exclusive claims that there is no way to the Father except through him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that God Not any man, not any society, not any culture gets to dictate what is right and wrong and what is true. These are exclusive claims that the Bible unapologetically makes. And as Christians, we are to unapologetically follow and implement our lives, not out of hostility, but out of love for neighbor. For if God has ordained it and commanded it, it is for your good, it is for your neighbor's good. That is the truth of the gospel. So if we're always getting praise from the world, we might need to reconsider things because Jesus said it's what the false prophets got. We need to check these things. And when we start getting the things that aren't praise from the world, we need to have the proper reactions. So we're not only to speak well of those who persecute us and pray for them, uh, and pray for them, we are also to actually seek their good and do good towards them. This is the third thing, blessing equals seeking their good. Tim Keller said this, I'm gonna summarize this really quick. Tim Keller said this perfectly. He said, not only are we not to pay each other back, we are positively to put ourselves out to build up those who have hurt us. This is the call of the Christian. It's not an easy call, but it is a worthy call. Fourthly, blessing equals forgiving. Jesus was slapped, he was spit upon, He was mocked, beaten, falsely accused, and hung naked on a cross for all to come and mock, like a common criminal. The only one who had full right of condemnation over people's lives instead said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is our calling. This is our road to walk in. And it's our joy to walk in in the footsteps of our Savior. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's hard truth, but it's good truth, church. To forgive the inexcusable in someone else means that we must give up our desire to curse them and to pay them back in some way, which is the fifth thing um, that this means. Blessing cancels cursing, and it cancels revenge. The gospel tells us to trust that the God of justice will properly deal with those who commit any injustice against us. It's not to be in our hands, it's to be joyfully given over into his hands. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that God has already blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we do not depend on the blessing of other people, nor do we despair when others curse us. Our blessing is in Christ. And Romans 8 reminds us, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says, no, no, nothing in all of creation. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Moreover, Jesus tells us there is a blessedness to being persecuted on his account. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we know, Jesus certainly understood and experienced persecution. Yet 1 Peter 2.23 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. We must learn to do the same, to trust God to judge justly, to bless those who do harm against us. Because when we follow King Jesus, persecution cancels cursing and it cancels seeking revenge on them. Which brings us to the second point in today's outline from verse 15, that community calls for joy and empathy and it cancels jealousy and apathy. Verse 15 tells us, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Both of these commands can be very difficult for us. Uh, at different times, I think really the, for me at least, I would say probably if we're honest, probably the majority of us, the first one's a little more difficult than the second one actually. We like to rejoice, we don't, don't get me wrong, we much rather rejoice than weep. But when it comes to others, it's a little bit different because here's the thing. We tend to only like to rejoice about things that benefit us. We tend to like to rejoice about things that we get to be happy about. But what happens when that's not the case? What happens when someone else has a reason to be happy and we don't? In our flesh, we tend to do these things, but scripture tells us that we are to rejoice over the good that others experience with of course the exception of that being something that is sinful or wrong in God's word. This directly relates to how we are to love our neighbor. One way that we do that is to seek the good of our neighbors as we've said, and then rejoice when that good comes about in their lives. Philippians two, three through four speaks to this when it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. These, also, these verses also point out to us um, a very real reason why we don't tend to seek the good of others uh, and thus rejoice at their welfare. Selfish ambition and conceit. In other words, we envy others, get jealous. Why should they get to go on that vacation? Why should they get that scholarship? Why should they get that raise? We don't tend to rejoice if we don't feel like we should be the ones rejoicing. The Old Testament spoke about this in a word um, that gets thrown around in church every now and then, but it's a kind of an older word. Exodus 20, verse 17, the 10 commandments says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And just in case you think this is, oh, that's Old Testament, we've moved past that. Well, Jesus brings it home a little bit even harder in Mark chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. He says, for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In our hearts, we covet things. We want that thing. And sometimes we want it so bad that we don't just want it. We just, we want, we want it for ourselves and we don't want that person to have it. Especially tying back to verse 14, if that's a person that we deem as someone who persecutes us or curses us, or let's just be honest, even annoys us. Like we're to, we're to bless those who annoy us. And guess what? In 2020, that's really hard, isn't it? Guess what? God's word doesn't take a break in 2020 or 2021 or ever. Romans, I'm sorry, Isaiah 55 tells us that it goes forth and accomplishes what it is set for us to do. We are to apply these things to our lives. And when we do, things changes. But you may be asking yourself, what's so bad about wanting good stuff? Like, what, what's the problem with that, Jared? The problem is this, coveting is the first step towards idolatry. And it is something that we do very well. Be idolaters. When something becomes an idol, even happiness is taken out of its proper place in our hearts and it's relocated to a place that belongs solely to the Lord. So an inability or unwillingness to rejoice with those who rejoice is essentially us saying, I want the good thing my neighbor has and I want it more than I want him or her to have it. This is just pure selfishness. It really is. And it's at the heart of every single one of us. None of us are exempt from this. 
But it's also saying this, and we don't rejoice with those who rejoice. It says this, it says, I value the good thing my neighbor has more than I value all the good that God has given me in Christ. And that is the... That is the heart of the idolatrous nature of refusing or being unwilling to rejoice with those who rejoice. Finding our contentment and satisfaction in Christ leads to joy in every area of a Christian's life. This is what Paul speaks of in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. I have learned in whatever situation that I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Our contentment found in Christ gives us contentment in every other area. Doesn't mean that everything's gonna be all peachy keen and great all the time, but it means that we are content because we have the only thing, as I spoke from Tim Keller a few weeks ago, we have the only thing that matters. That's what joy is. We have the only thing that matters. When you have Christ, you have the only thing that matters. Ultimately, everything else in this world, this life will pass away. But Christ and his word and his kingdom, his people will endure forever. We're not content. Here's the thing. If we're not content in Christ when something else is lacking in our life, we won't be content if that thing was present in our life. If you are longing for something and you're not finding contentment in Christ, if you were to get that thing, it would not make you any more content. Maybe for a day, maybe for a month, maybe for a year, but ultimately it will fail you as well. Our contentment is found only in Christ. It was only there that it, that it is lasting. But when our contentment is there, apart from our circumstances, we can then rejoice in the Lord always as Philippians 4.4 tells us to do even when others have reasons to rejoice that we don't have. That is the truth of the gospel. But on the other side of that, Paul also says this. He points us to the other end of the emotional spectrum and says to weep with those who weep. And once again, this can be hard if you don't consider yourself an empathetic person, especially. And let's be honest, not, some of us are more empathetic than others. And that's okay, God, God created a certain way, but it doesn't give you a pass. Things that break the heart of your brother and sister in Christ should break your heart as well because they break God's heart. That's the truth. Jesus understood this and exemplified this perfectly in John chapter 11. He is told Lazarus is sick. He's like, it's cool. I'm gonna hang out another couple of days. It's all good. Sickness doesn't lead to death. And then he gets word, hey, Lazarus has died. He tells those disciples, Lazarus has died. We're going up there. Lazarus is dead now. And they're like, well, what? Why, why are we going? Why, are we go? why didn't we go when he was sick? They end up going and they get there and he's greeted by Martha and then by Mary. And if we pick up reading in John 11, um, verse 28, he's just encountered uh, Martha and he goes to Mary and he says, uh, when she had said this, that is Martha, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were, who were with her in the house, um, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly to go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? I said to him they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now, obviously, our main focus here is on chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. But we need to stop and ask the question, why? Why did Jesus weep? Think about it. Jesus knew Lazarus was sick. Lazarus was gonna die. Lazarus was going to be raised by his power from the dead. So none of that's shocking to Jesus. None of it's something that he should be weeping over as if there is no hope. Jesus had certainly anticipated Martha and Mary's um, weeping and they're being very troubled by the death of their brother. He was expecting, he had seen a, a Jewish funeral before by this time, if not many times. 
His engineer's funeral knew that there would be many people wept, weeping. So it's not just Jesus is a sympathetic crier in the general sense, but he is empathetic towards the people he loves. Jesus entered into the hurt and the pain of these two sisters. In that moment, he entered into it. Even knowing that there was going to be hope on the other side, even knowing that he had come not just to bring hope for Lazarus' raising from this dead, but one day with all of us raising to eternal life in a new body. Jesus knew all that, but it didn't stop him from pausing in that moment and entering into the grief of those he loved. He calls us to do the same thing. We are to grieve over the things that grieve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians should be a place where empathy abounds. The church should be a place where empathy abounds. We should be the most empathetic people around because though we know what is coming is sure and it is good, the pain of the here and now is still very real. It is. Jesus wasn't blind to that and neither should we be. Jesus, Isaiah 53 verse four says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He is a suffering savior. Not only did he suffer for us, but he suffers with us. So Jesus didn't dismiss others' pain and neither should we. In Christian community, our joy in Christ should cancel out jealousy when people get good things that we don't get and should cancel out apathy when people feel pain that we don't feel. Which brings us to our third and final point for today. And that's harmony calls for humility. And it cancels haughtiness and pride. Verse 16 tells us, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. See, humility is a non-negotiable for believers. And it's a non-negotiable for harmony to exist among believers. As I mentioned just a, um, a moment ago, you know, Philippians 2 tells us, in humility, we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. A few weeks ago, or several weeks ago now, when I preached um, on Romans 12, um, my, uh, my 12 verse three, that is, um, my goal was to help us see that the Christian life is not about undervaluing ourselves any more than it is about overvaluing ourselves. Rather, we are, again, to have an accurate estimation of ourselves. Rightly understanding who we are comes only from rightly standing under who Christ is, was the, the line for the sermon. So when we rightly view ourselves through the lens of Jesus Christ, we can treat others as if they are more significant than we are and trust that God will exalt, exalt us according to his perfect timing and his perfect will. We can trust him with that. See, the thing is, though each, three of these, each of these commands, each of these verses requires our effort, more than that, it requires our trust in God. That is the Christian life, dependence on Christ. The book of Proverbs speaks to this idea though of pride and haughtiness that is to be canceled, as many of you are probably thinking about. Proverbs 8, verse 12 through 13 says, so it says, I wisdom dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So first, it's, it's kind of ironic that those who are haughty, also tend to be the ones who are wise in their own eyes, kind of go hand in hand, you know? And yet the Bible teaches that pride and wisdom are opposites. <laughs> Isn't it funny how the world gets things so wrong when the Bible lays it out so clearly? Humility, however, goes hand in hand with wisdom. Proverbs 11 verse two says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Once again, there, there's irony here. There's irony in the way that pride works. It claims to bring us prestige. And in reality, the, ship, the, the scripture says it brings us disgrace. It brings us shame. Pride goes before destruction, Proverbs 16, 18 through 19 tells us, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. And here's a tough one. We know that pride goes before destruction. We get that. But less often do we hear and consider verse 19 that in God's sight, 
a lowly spirit that associates with the, with the poor is more admirable than great riches shared with the prideful. That's not really something our culture tells us. That's not something that we like to hear, but it's the, that's the truth that the Bible tells us. Proverbs 29, verse 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. As we heard from the sermon again from Romans 12, three, our pride will eventually bring us low every time, every time, either now or before the judgment seat of God one day. It will bring us low, but humility allows for God to be the one who raises us up. When we considered the church, haughtiness among believers will inevitably bring disharmony, disunity, disorder, and dysfunction. It has nothing good to offer. Pride has nothing good to offer in your individual life. It has nothing good to offer in the life of the church. Nothing. Being wise in one's own sight will lead to this kind of haughtiness. But the wisdom from above, James 3, 17 to 18 tells us, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Humility is wisdom from above. It's wisdom that counts. It's wisdom that God honors. It brings peace and harmony in the church and it leads us to be willing to associate with those the world deems less thans. Because in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that as we did it or did not do it to one of these less thans. So we did or did not show kindness, care for them. We didn't do it unto him or we did. The way that we treat the least of these reflects on the way that we treat and deal with Christ. Jesus said it himself. Pride has no legs to stand on before God. Even the good things like our theology or our education, if they lead us to be haughty and prideful, then they are perverted and they do harm. But James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights. And yet pride blinds us to this. Paul reminded the Corinthian church uh, who had become rather prideful and, and puffed up in their knowledge he said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Then you did receive it. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And earlier he had told them, consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and, sanctifi and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. There's no room for haughtiness in Christ's church. There's always room for humility. Haughtiness pushes out, humility draws in. Haughtiness will keep us from being like Jesus, but humility will make us more like him. See, pride says I'm too good, too educated, too hygienic, too wealthy, too, well, too high to associate with this person or with that group. But humility that brings harmony says, if Christ stooped to associate with me, no one is too lowly for me to befriend. Psalm 138, six states, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. We can think we are better than that when it comes to people and things that God leads us to. And we tend to do this too often. I tend to do this too often. But we are to bring ourselves low so that God in his proper time can raise us, our, us up. And we do this because Christ himself is near to the lowly. That's all of us, all of us sinners who need his grace. 
Philippians 2, 6 through 8, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, the lowest of the low, by the way, and being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Before we move to a conclusion, I wanna just take a brief moment to make a statement in the aftermath of this 2020 presidential election. And everybody had just a really different reaction. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, I'm ready for this to be done and stop talked about. Some of you are like, on pins and needles waiting for what I'm gonna say. And some of you are mad that I'm even bringing it up. But I hope that in these next just couple of moments that you will hear from the heart of God. The first part of Romans 12, 16 says, live in harmony with one another. And the last part says, do not be wise in your own sight. Let's be honest. These days, there's not a whole lot of common ground between our two political parties. Yet, there are people who claim faith in Jesus who voted differently in this election. This is a reality. And while we may struggle from our perspective to understand how a Christian could vote for that guy, we must leave that to God's wisdom. It's out of our hands to sort out is beyond our wisdom and our understanding. And when we seek to pronounce a judgment on someone to say, there's no way you can be a Christian and vote for that person. When we do that, we are being wise in our own sight. And we are not pursuing harmony within Christ's church. And that grieves the heart of our God. The gospel of Jesus transcends all societies all cultures, all ethnicities, and yes, all politics. We in the church must be eager, eager to maintain this truth and the unity that Christ both commands and provides through his spirit if we will seek his glory above all else. See, in music, harmony requires different but complementary parts. As Christians, we must always hold that it is Christ and him alone that provides the melody, the part that stands alone, regardless of harmony. That which can only be the thing that is isolated in the composition and makes sense. But it is then the various members of the body of Christ which provide these differing parts of harmony. If one part tries to stand alone, it will be out of place and even displeasing to hear. But when the gospel of Jesus is the melody, when it is central and it dictates how the varying parts of harmony, though different, beautifully complement one another. When this is true, God does amazing things in and through his church. And let me be very clear. I'm not comparing the two prominent political parties um, nor their presidential tickets that they put forth to being entirely right or in step with the gospel of Jesus by coming in as harmony. I'm not saying that. What I am asking is this that each of us not look at our brothers and sisters in the faith like they are our enemies. I am begging that we do not do this because when we do, the, when we will do things as Christ has called us to, the church will not be unified if we are not in step with Christ. When we are looking at one another's enemies, Christ's church will be divided and the true enemy wins. Satan will stop at nothing to make the church a mockery and to keep it divided. Jesus said a house divided cannot stand. How in the world is an arguing world supposed to find hope in Christ if all we ever show it is an arguing church? This should convict every one of our hearts. We must value maintaining the unity of the church more than we value our political convictions, our comfort, even our freedoms in this great country more than we value anything except for Christ himself. To be, unite, to be unified, we must submit ourselves to the one mind of Christ that we, have, that we have been given, as 1 Corinthians 2, 16b tells us. 
As we deal with our brothers and sisters of the faith, we must cancel haughtiness and walk in humility. Haughtiness pulls us apart, humility presses us in. Haughtiness will lead us to condemnation of others, but don't miss this. Humility will lead us to conversation with others. And this is crucial if the church is going to be united. As long as we stay on opposite sides of things, the church can't be united. It can't. By being on different sides of things and not coming together, we are, that is the definition of being divided. <laughs> but to be unified, we have to make effort and we have to do it in humility. If you can't understand why a Christian you know voted differently than you, instead of blasting them on social media, go buy their lunch and have a conversation with them and ask, if you follow Jesus, why did you vote this way? You may leave there both thinking the exact same thing you did walking in, but perhaps at the very least, you'll have a better appreciation for your brother or sister and a greater love for them, even in your differences. Let me tell you something. Every single one of us can take a brother and sister Christ in, to, to coffee or to lunch if Jesus could wash Judas's feet. We're not above it. We're not above it. And our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter their vote, are not our enemies. Christ is greater than that. Let's not act like he's not. If you see opposing votes on the other side, if you see the opposing votes of brothers and sisters in Christ as being oppressive or leading to persecution of you or people you love, Scripture says, pray for them. Pray for that person. Pray for those people. You'll never know their heart like God does, but I can all but guarantee you, you'll know it better if you enter into relationship with people. And if we pray for those who persecute us, we're being like Christ. We're doing what he's called us to do. Your brothers and sisters of faith are your allies, not your enemies. And even if they were your enemies, Jesus still commanded you to pray for them. Perhaps the Lord who can bring the dead back to life might just be able to change their heart if that is necessary. But we should pray. I'll leave you with this quote and then we'll conclude. In his classic exploration of Christian community called Life Together, German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, he who looks upon his brother, and we could say or sister, should know that he will be eternally united with him or her in Jesus Christ. Let's not miss that when we have our disagreements. We will be eternally united together in Christ. We see, as we conclude, we have to say the church needs a certain kind of cancel, cancel culture, a peculiar one, not one that seeks to eradicate others' careers or reputations or even their lives, but one that seeks to eradicate sin. And that starts with us, allowing God's word to rid us of sin in our lives. There's no place in the Christian's life for cursing or revenge, no place for jealousy nor apathy, no place for haughtiness and pride. We must remember that according to God's law, all that is sinful must be canceled before the Lord. It cannot remain. And the bad news about this is that means we must be canceled before the Lord, apart from the grace that is given us in Jesus Christ. But the gospel tells us that we have been given that grace. That Jesus came he did not cancel us on account of our sin, but rather he came and he became our sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, and was himself canceled on the cross. Colossians 2 reminds us, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But three days later, three days later, scripture tells us that the father canceled his son's cancellation. This is the gospel church. This is what we are to walk in. And the gospel tells us that by grace of God, through faith, 
in Jesus, that this faith cancels our cancellation as well. And the gospel invites us to then be diligent to cancel the fleshly thoughts, words, and actions that no longer deserve relevance or existence in our lives. Instead, we get to live out a Christian cancel culture where the deeds of our dead flesh are canceled to make way for the life-giving fruit and work of the spirit. So may our God be glorified in his church and throughout all his creation. And may his church commit to live in the truth that because Christ has canceled, was canceled for us, he has canceled the penalty of sin. And now we are to be actively working to cancel the power of sin over us as we expectantly wait when our King returns to cancel the very presence of sin forevermore. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, how can we ever repay you? Christ, how can we pay back even a portion of what you have done for us by being canceled on the cross in our stead? Or the only thing that we can do is to give back the life that is rightfully yours, the life that you have given us, that we might live in a way that makes much of Jesus, that cancels the things that grieve your heart, that spit in your face, that choose to not obey you and to seek other things for our fulfillment and satisfaction. God, we can allow your spirit to work in us so that we may cancel those. God, may that be true in your church. God, may the world see a different picture in Alberta Baptist and in your church across America and across the world. God, I pray that you would revive your church in these times. Lord, that we would truly be a city on a hill that stands out that makes a canceling culture wonder what is different about us. And it draws many to faith in your son. Lord, we believe that you can and that you will accomplish this. God, may we be your vessels. May you receive glory and praise and adoration in our lives. As we sing, God, will you draw our hearts to repent where that is necessary, to go to others where that is necessary, but God, to pursue your heart through the word that you have spoken to us today. I pray these things in your name, amen.